This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Well, good morning, all you dear Dharma brothers and sisters. It's good to see all of you in your boxes. And um, I feel so honored to be able to be here and give a talk. We had so many wonderful talks during the month of November, and then we had Mako last week, and so I'm deeply honored to follow these, these speakers. And what I want to talk about today, since today is the Buddhism uh, ceremony of the Buddha's enlightenment, and since so many people around the country and, and from our Sangha have been sitting in the Rahatsa Sashin, which is the enlightenment, uh, the Sashin that celebrates the Buddhist enlightenment, I want to talk about enlightenment. It's uh, a topic that I've always had a lot of trouble with. It's not a top, it's not a word I think about very much. Uh, I don't really think of myself as practicing to get enlightened. And it's a little disturbing to me, and maybe it is to you too, that enlightenment is frequently talked about as some kind of a fixed state that you finally attain and that once you get there you're kind of on this little shelf where you just can kind of sit and let the the dollars roll in you know and uh you're not going to do anything problematic or hurt anybody and yet uh we uh constantly see people that we think of in, enlightened and we see them hurting people and um you know as far as the buddhist enlightenment I don't know. I don't know the Buddha, and I don't know much about the real Buddha because he's been so mythologized, it's really hard to tell. Just what was the Buddha like? Uh, what was his enlightenment like? So anyway, I have those kinds. Of, do other people have, uh, have problems with, with the word enlightenment? I see, I see a few heads nodding. And, uh, so, okay. <laughs> so... Um, so what I wanted to talk about today was kind of explore a little bit, especially uh, talk about some of the things that Suzuki Roshi says about enlightenment. There's been, I've been uh, working on this talk during the week, and it's been really, really uh, wonderful for me. I feel like this subject that I've avoided so much, I'm actually looking at a little bit. And I hope that after the talk, I will go back to not thinking about it. And I hope you'll go back to think, not thinking about it if, if you don't think about it. I hope, I hope that for you. But uh, it has been uh, very enlightening, no pun intended, to uh, read a little bit and learn a little bit about uh, thoughts about enlightenment. Now I want to share those, those with you. Well, going back to the Lotus Sutra, there's a parable in the Lotus Sutra called the parable of the burning house. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. And um, it kind of goes like this. There's this big old ramshackle house. It's full of uh, children playing. And it's owned by a wealthy man. And apparently many of these hundreds of people are his children. And this is a myth, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But the house is on fire. And there's only one way out. And the uh, wealthy man is uh, very concerned about getting his children out of the burning house. But they're all busy. You know, they got their iPhones and hundreds and hundreds of apps and Facebook and Twitter and, uh, you know, their home improvement projects and all their other projects. And they're really busy. And they don't, don't, they don't even hear uh, their father when he says, get out, the house is on fire. So he comes up with this idea 
of a way to get them out. And he builds these very magnificent carts and all the carts are pulled by different animals. Three carts are all played, pulled by different animals. And, and then he tells the children, hey, I've got the most wonderful toys outside. Come on out and play with them. You'll enjoy them so much more than what you're doing now. So, so come on out. And they all run out. And uh, so he has been successful at enticing them with these three cards. And the three cards are three yanas, which are vehicles to enlightenment. And uh, so the Buddha is using the idea of enlightenment as a big piece of candy to uh, uh, interest people in practicing and, and, and get them, uh, you know, to practice. So I wonder, is that all enlightenment is? Is it just a big enticement? Is it, like sometimes I think, just a big false story told to, uh, to get us out of, because you of course know that the children in the house are us. We're all the children in the burning house. So um, is, that what, is that what enlightenment is? Is it just a figment of the Buddha's imagination? So this is a story about upaya, which, as most of you know, I think is skillful means, teaching skillful means. Uh, in other words, doing whatever a teacher has to do to, to get uh, a student to, uh, to realize their, their true nature. And a few months ago, uh, I listened to a Dharma talk online by a teacher who I really respect. And in answer to a student's question, he said, there is no such thing as enlightenment. Well, I was so happy to hear this. It just sort of validated my thinking. And I, I was very happy to hear this. And I really held on to his words. Uh, but as I was getting ready for this talk, I started to think about a little bit about it. And I realized he also was employing skillful means because this student that asked this question, I think he detected a little bit of attachment in this student, attachment to the idea of enlightenment. So to pull the rug out from under the student, he just said, there's no such thing as enlightenment. Um, I also realized that his words, there's no such thing as enlightenment is really literally true because enlightenment is not a thing. You know, I thought, well, let's go see what Suzuki Roshi has to say about enlightenment. So Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, for anyone who's not familiar with it, uh, a small book, only about 130 pages of uh, Suzuki uh, Roshi's uh, thinking uh, in his early days here in the United States. Well, uh, you know, after reading the foreword, the foreword by Houston Smith, which makes the statement that Suzuki Roshi never once mentions the word Satori in, in his book, I uh, pursued on and I found an electronic copy of the book and I searched it for the word enlightenment. And I found out that in this little book of 130 pages, there are 99 references to the word enlightenment. So uh, Suzuki Roshi obviously has uh, many thoughts on the subject and I thought that I would mine the book for his thoughts. So I went through the book and I, I picked up uh, his thoughts around each uh, time that he used that word. So it's kind of a kind of a hokey artificial way to prepare for a talk, I guess. But um, I don't know. I felt like it worked because I found so many gold nuggets in the book. Uh, and so I wanted to share uh, some of those with you. So uh, early in the book, he, he starts out, he des describes enlightenment. 
he, he compares it pretty completely to Buddha nature. Enlightenment is, is the universal nature or, or Buddha nature. So when you are with Buddha, you are in a place of enlightenment. I gave a talk a couple months ago where I talked about when we're in that state where we're outside of our thinking mind, and when we're outside of our singing mind, we're, we're in the midst of this vast uh, universal mind, which we, some, in our repentance, we call it the merciful ocean of Buddha's way. I love that expression. Um, and there's a lot of other names for it. And I, I said some of that time, so I'll repeat some of them. Um, the uh, part of us that is the enlightened part, because we are all enlightened and uh, uh, from, from, it's our birthright. It's always there for us. And uh, other words for this part of us that's always enlightened is uh, the one who's never busy, the person of no rank, and uh, an expression that uh, uh, Paul Haller introduced last week in his series of talks for Rohatsu, uh, your face before your parents were born. This is the universal mind that you are, we are all made of. And then we had Kokio Henkel here who talked about the, the vast now, now, kind of the eternity, the, the vastness that includes all past and future and all possibility. And uh, also I realized too that, you know, our, our practice period was on taking refuge and um, Taking refuge is, of course, also being with Buddha. So taking refuge is another word for uh, the enlightened. The act of being enlightened is to take refuge. So enlightenment isn't some big um, complex thing. It's certainly not something that's outside of us. It is something that we, we just are completely made of. So one of the really nice little gold nuggets that I mined out of this book is um, uh, on page 56, he talks about making bread from flour. And he, he equates enlightenment is, is jumping in the oven and, um, and making bread from, from flour. So making uh, a life-sustaining, delicious, loaf of bread from a mundane staple like flour uh, is, is really something to give pause. We're actually transforming this mundane uh, substance, flour, into uh, this life-sustaining loaf of bread. And the Buddha was really interested in this, doing this because what he wanted to to learn was transformation. He wanted to learn how a person can transform um, themselves with uh, in this practice. And of course, I don't think he exactly knew just quite where it was going, um, but he believed enough in this, uh, he'd seen enough of this uh, Buddha nature to, to, to really truly and utterly believe in it. And so he was able to, stick to it for six years of pretty much constant meditation. And then he saw um, the morning star and on the morning of December 8th, <laughs> you know, really what day it was, but we celebrated this happening on December 8th, which is what the word Rohatsu means actually, the eighth day of the last month. 
And uh, so, but he practiced this baking bread all the time. He was constantly practicing transforming the flour into bread over and over and over again. So uh, another point that Suzuki makes is the idea that I already touched on a little bit that um, enlightenment is, is us. We are enlightenment. There's no, there's no distinction. And we can't look for enlightenment outside ourselves. If we do look for enlightenment out of ourselves, that's called grasping. We're, we're grasping um, uh, for something that we're never going to be able to get because uh, it's not outside ourselves. We have to look within for it. Um, I read something um, the other day from Bodhidharma's uh, bloodstream sermon, which I thought was really apropos and blew my mind a little bit. He said, he says, Bodhidharma, who may or may not have existed, said, trying to find a Buddha or enlightenment is trying to grab space. Space has a name, but no form. It's not something you can pick up or put down, and you certainly can't grab it. The Buddha is a product of your mind. Why look for a Buddha behind, behind this mind? So to attain enlightenment is always to be with Buddha. Wherever we, I'll read what he says a little bit. Wherever we go, we should not lose this way of life. This is called being Buddha or being the boss. Wherever you go, you should be the master of your surroundings. Also in the last Dharma talk I gave, I talked about the koan about Joshu and the hermits. And uh, Joshu uh, was in a boat and he went down the river and he stopped at two different hermits huts. And he said, is the master in? And the hermits went, the hermit, first hermit went, yeah. And um, he said, and, and Joshu said, oh, too shallow to dock here. But he went on down to another hermit's house. And he said, is the master in? And the hermit raised his fist. Am I doing that right? It's kind of like the well, anyway, solidarity type of fist raising. So he raised his fist and said, he didn't have to say anything. Uh, and uh, Joshu said, oh, free to live, free to die, free to kill, free to save. Um, so Joshu was, uh, I think, commenting a little bit on the, the depth of these enlightenments, but, but both, uh, both hermits were with Buddha. And they were with the master. And what does it mean to be with Buddha? Is, some, is being with Buddha something that only advanced students can do? Uh, I don't think so. That would be a catch-22. You couldn't get to be an advanced student if you weren't with Buddha. So obviously, uh, we're, we're with Buddha uh, a lot more than we're. Everybody can be with Buddha, I guess is what I'm trying to say, uh, no matter how what your experience level is. What does it mean to be with Buddha? I think um, being with Buddha means trying to be with Buddha. I mean, I know I'm using the word try, and I know that's a, that's a difficult word, but uh, when we're, when we're uh, positioned to be with Buddha, when we're expressing a desire to be with Buddha, however we may do that, then we're with Buddha. 
you know, if we're sitting in our kitchen, we're brand new and our mind is just a, you know, a bunch of squirrels on steroids and monkeys jumping all around the place, but we're trying to watch our breath. Maybe we're the breath or two and then our mind wanders away and then it comes back and we come back to another breath and maybe we only take one breath and then our mind goes away and then we keep coming back. We're with Buddha. All it takes is, is the effort to be with Buddha, to be with Buddha. So I don't want to make it sound like being with Buddha is some, um, some uh, erudite thing only for advanced students. The more you do this, though, the easier it gets to be with Buddha. And uh, you know, how much time you want to spend doing that is your, your choice. So um, I kind of got off there. I wasn't really using uh, um, Suzuki Roshi's words, but uh, I'll come back to the next thing that I found that he said, and this is a big one. He said that enlightenment does not free us from our karma. It does not free us from our karma life. And I think this is really, really important because I think that um, people think that, and this goes along with that fixed idea of getting up to some resting place that you can get there and then everything's downhill from then. You don't have to make that much effort. Uh, and that you might be free from your karma, but you're not. And the Buddha, and, and I, I don't really know, I know nothing really about Buddha's life. So I found it very interesting that Suzuki talked about um, how the Buddha many times expressed karma and the sadness and the suffering uh, from his own karma. Um, he, the, the one incident that he mentions is that the a Buddha at one point in time was very, very sad because his country was being overrun and being taken over by a neighboring uh, king. And um, so um, he was very sad about that. And, um, and I guess there were many other incidences too. So, um, yeah. So what about them? Um, what about, I mean, I think some people have the mistaken idea that somehow enlightenment will make them happy. Has anybody ever had that idea? I, I don't know if I actually thought about enlightenment making me happy, but I certainly thought Zen practice would make me happy. But the thing is, Zen practice hasn't changed my personality. Uh, it's smoothed out some rough edges for sure. And, uh, but I'm still, I've still got some of the same, most of the same karma that I've always had. It's kind of dangerous to say that, and I'm not even, I probably shouldn't even go there. But if you're a happy-go-lucky person, and you have the fortune of being with Buddha a lot, and you maybe a state, a, a, attain some state of enlightenment, you're still going to be a happy-go-lucky person but your happiness is going to be richer and fuller and it's going to be more helpful. If you're a somber, sober person, kind of plodding through life, um, you're still going to be a somber and sober person if you are with Buddha a lot. But your somberness and your soberness, you're going to appreciate them. You're going to see them more as a gift. You're going to see ways that that could be helpful help a stability you can be a stability anchor for people um, at any rate 
you will be enriched deeply. But, you know, you've still got those, those karmic things going on. Well, I certainly think, though, that we can ship away at our karma. Sometimes we can actually overcome karmic drives that we have. And we can't overcome them, maybe one by one. But we can't completely escape it. And I think that's an important thing to remember when we see or hear about supposedly enlightened people that do really unenlightened, unenlightened things and harm people or harm students. Um, I think for some people, it's so devastating when they hear those stories that they quit the practice. They just feel like, oh, no, I, I thought I was in this practice to to become, to overcome my karma and here this person couldn't do it, you know, and they've been practicing all their life. And um, I, I just think we have to keep perspective on this. And so this is pretty important idea that we can't uh, transcend karma. Um, I, th I think probably another uh, little uh, gem that I wanted to bring up was, I think this is something that uh, many of you are familiar with his little section on uh, standing in the fog and uh, just very, very gradually getting wet. I'm talking about very, very gradually through your life uh, in uh, being with Buddha uh, gets you a little bit wetter and wetter. You don't even realize it. You don't even realize it as it's happening. And uh, then you look back. It's kind of like uh, the more that we uh, are with Buddha, the more that we are making an effort to touch our own enlightenment, the more that we make that effort, um, it, it kind of sticks to us. It's kind of sticky. So I think of it as sticking to us and um, possibly uh, leading to more and more enlightened states. Enlightened states might be, um, enlightened states are frequently very momentary. You know, you just have a few moments with Buddha and your mind wanders off again and then you come back to it. But, uh, but it piles, but it, apparently it piles up. And I don't know. I think I saw something that, that Choro put out on the Discord about how sometimes that you, uh, you look back and you realize that you're, you've dropped away some really bad habit and uh, that enlightenment is more about the things that you've, you've let go of. Uh, and I think that's absolutely true. I guess the Zen is a practice of letting go of extra, of the extra, letting go of the, the head on the head, you know? And so uh, I, I know I had an experience myself, uh, I don't know, I've been practicing for um, maybe 10 years and my early years of practice were very uh, intermittent. So I, I wasn't like somebody who went to a monastery and stayed there. I was kind of off again and on again and going to a lot of sessions, but in between that time, maybe not doing much practice at all. So, but uh, maybe about 10 years into that, around, around um, the turning of the millennium, I was watching the Olympics with my mother and I was just really blown away by this gymnast that was just, I mean, you know, she just seemed to be leaving the earth somehow. It was just beautiful. And I, I said to my mother, oh, my gosh, this is just, isn't this just amazing, this, this girl? And my mother said, well, are you jealous? <laughs> 
And my mother is a very jealous person, and I was a very jealous person. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not jealous now, but I was really crazy jealous when I was younger. I mean, I got jealous of anybody that could do something well, because I didn't feel very good about my own ability to do anything well, and I was very jealous. And it was a huge part of my life. But when my mother said that, I didn't feel, I didn't feel a tad. I didn't feel any jealousy. I totally enjoyed this performance. And I, I said, oh, my gosh, this practice works. I mean, you know, I, I hadn't realized that, that, that I had lost that, that kind of crazy jealousy that I used to have. Uh, so it was really a, a nice moment. But turning back to uh, Suzuki Roshi, I keep leaving him. I'm going back to him. Practice enlightenment. He talks about practice enlightenment, which, as you know, is a, a, an idea we, we've been passed down from Dogen. Uh, another way of saying that we're not separate from enlightenment, that it is us and that our practice. Uh, but that in order to touch it, in order to cultivate it, uh, and, and really appreciate it is to practice. And, uh, and maybe I've already made them into a dualism, I'm not sure, but that practice and enlightenment are no different. Um, and uh, I thought something, Suzuki Roshi said something very interesting. He said, usually we understand the practice of zazen enlightenment as two different things. Here is practice, like a pair of glasses. And when we use this practice, like putting the glasses on, we see enlightenment. But this is the wrong understanding. The glasses themselves are enlightenment. And to put them on is also enlightenment. And then he ties uh, back again to Dogen. Uh, Dogen had this rather strange Dogen-like expression, which was, we should attain enlightenment before we attain enlightenment. So uh, maybe that's kind of what I was saying about how just looking for Buddha is being with Buddha. And I, I'm, I'm not sure, I, I don't like to interpret what he says because it might be a deeper meaning than that, that. But so uh, uh, attaining enlightenment, before we attain enlightenment means that it's not after attaining enlightenment, enlightenment that we find its true meaning. Trying to do something in itself is enlightenment. So sometimes we think that we need to have a long uh, preparation for enlightenment, but actually the preparation is already enlightenment. And uh, Suzuki Roshi says another thing in the book, which is, was interesting, you know, there's this talk about uh, immediate enlightenment or slow enlightenment, but Suzuki says at one point that all enlightenment is sudden. And... Um, Again, I'm going with my take on that. I, I think back to when I've had little realizations, and a, and a realization can be anything. It can be something really deep about your life, or it might be even just solving a problem at work that you have, you know, and you're sitting quietly on your cushion, and suddenly the answer comes to you. And uh, I found, yeah, when I think back about experiences like that where I've had uh, some kind of something I actually saw as a realization that it has been sudden. Um, and, and again, it's so hard to not be dualistic, but then, and again, there's the other idea of the slow standing in the fog, the 
you know, the subject is so full of contradictions, you know, but <laughs> that's why it's interesting. So um, anyway, and here's some, here's some other news too. Don't cry. It's really not bad news. But he actually says in the book that not everybody attains enlightenment, even those who, were, who are sitting on their cushion a lot, even those who are um, with Buddha, you know, all the time. I, I think a prime example of, of this is uh, the Buddha's own cousin, first cousin and attendant, Amnanda, who supposedly didn't attain enlightenment, maybe at the end of his life, or at the end of the Buddha's life, something happened. But for the most part, he was considered unenlightened. And yet, he was just such a, uh, a stanchion of, of Buddhism. He, was, he adored the Buddha, he, which might have been part of his problem. And he, did, uh, he, did, he was his faithful, faithful, faithful attendant. And he suffered uh, mightily at the Buddha's death. And uh, he... Uh, and he was very, very beloved. He was a very beloved and helpful person who launched, helped launch Buddhism. Uh, for one thing, he had a, a photographic memory. And um, so after the Buddha's death, he was able to remember a lot of the Buddha's words and, and, and keep those going, keep those alive. I don't think they wrote things down. I think there was some taboo on that, but, but he kept the stories alive. Um, but anyway, an amazing man who was not enlightened. He, and I don't think it was for lack of, of trying. But, um, and, you know, it, it, I, I kind of identify in a way with him. I think he uh, was known to have, you know, obviously he was very smart and he had this, this photographic memory. And he, um, I, he took everything extremely literally. And boy, is that me. I sure take things literally. I get really tied up in knots over these contradictions. And different people say that, you know, <laughs> you can't attain enlightenment. And yet they talk about enlightenment as an attainment. <laughs> I get upset in the Heart Sutra when it says, uh, oh, what's it say about attainment? There is no such thing as attainment. A Buddha relies on Prajnaparamita. And then about three or four sentences later, it talks about attaining uh, attaining enlightenment or attaining something. I can't remember now. Anyway, those kind of things get me, my mind really tied up in knots. And it's troubling. And it, it's it's hard to, 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 to transcend that. But some people can do it a lot easier than others. Um, but you know what? I'm really not particularly concerned about if I am enlightened or not, um, or if I will ever be enlightened. And I don't have that much more time, so it doesn't look like it's going to happen. <laughs> but you know what? It, some, for some strange reason, it doesn't really bother me. And we're kind of all in this together. And I'll ride the tales of other people who were able to be enlightened, you know, more than, more than myself. Apropos to that, I want to read this quote from, from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, which is more important, to attain enlightenment or to attain enlightenment before you attain enlightenment? To make a million dollars or to enjoy your life in your effort little by little, even though it is impossible to make that million? To be successful or to find some meaning in your effort to be successful? 
If you do not know the answer, you will not even be able to practice Sazen. If you do know, you will have found the true treasure of life. So I take a lot of um, comfort in those words. I actually think of something wise I said to somebody once, it just came out of me. <laughs> um, my boyfriend was a machinist and um, he, uh, he told me, I'm, I'm just a mediocre machinist. And I said, well, just be the best machinist. Just be the best mediocre machinist you can be. And I sort of, I saw his face kind of light up. So I felt like I, I helped somehow. So I thought my Dharma talk was too long, but it's not too long. It's only a quarter of 11. So, um, but I think I've come to the end of my, of my write up. And uh, so um, anybody have any comments or questions that they'd like to? Tracy has his eyes. Oh, that worked out nicely. Good morning, Pat. Hi, Tracy. Oh, I see you now. Yes. Great. Hi. Let me, uh, hi, let me get rid of my self view and get a, a view of you. There you are. <laughs> I just had to position the camera because I just dropped my daughter off at her art lesson and I'm sitting in a parking lot. And I so appreciate this talk, this topic. Goodness, that word. You know, it, we would, more than a few of us would be a lot better off with that word not in our vocabulary, our active vocabulary, if you know what I mean. So distracting because um, it gives us all kinds of ideas, as you were alluding to. And and it, could I um, I just this was like I was thinking oh yeah I should send her some you something and then I said oh maybe I'll just try to say it to you um, and and that's this that enlightenment is the recognition of that which is aware of what is coming and going that that is us and. And the corollary of that is that we are not what we are aware of. That is all those things that are coming and going, like our thoughts and feelings. With that kind of simple, everyday mind, recognition, that's where the work starts. <laughs> I mean, and I think that's what Suzuki Roshi was kind of saying when I had to kind of had to turn you down there for a bit about karma or something like that, that, that I was going to say about that, that that's where the work starts. That's where, you know, that letting of that, that understanding that I just kind of just said, you know, saturate, penetrate, shape our relationships. I mean, our relationship to everything that, you know, that we might still think and feel are, well, that's me, and that's you, and that's that, and mm, and th this feels what you said today like an extension of your last talk on awareness, and I, it just uh, really spoke to me. And and um, yeah, if you wanted to say anything about what I said, I, I didn't get get around to forming a question. <laughs> that's okay. I think that was an important contribution that you made, reminding us that. Just, just 
being paying attention to what's going on. And I, I didn't really bring that out. So I really appreciate your, your words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and noticing that, yeah, that, it, that we're, as we're paying attention, what we're seeing is all the coming and going. And that's usually our focus. Our exclusive attention is on the coming and going and not the awareness that's aware of all the coming and going. <laughs> right. And if we can be aware of the awareness, that is enlightenment. And we don't know it. I don't know. I mean, know. because we're not there. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. To be aware of awareness? All right, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's my take. Thanks so much okay. for that. Thanks so much, yeah. Tracy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Tim. Thank you so much, um, Pat, for your, your lovely talk. Um, I was really touched. Um, and I also have had this um, kind of long-term curiosity about Ananda as a, as a figure in our lore and, um, you know, about his contributions to our practice and the fact that he, you know, by all accounts, wasn't enlightened, at least during the Buddha's lifetime. I think... Um, I think the story in the um, transmission of light is that eventually, I think Mahakshapa had a had an interaction with Ananda where he was sort of enlightened. Um, but I loved your um, sort of offhand comment about maybe he cared too much, and that that sort of hindered him in some way. Um, I'm wondering if you could say any more about that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, the little bit that I've read about Ananda, which mostly consists of reading about him in Wikipedia, it sounds like he, it sounded to me like he kind of adored the Buddha. Maybe he worshiped the Buddha. And I think the whole concept of worshiping anything is kind of going to be contrary to uh, finding real peace, because when we worship something, we... It's, it's something we consider outside of ourselves. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the big uh, reason I think I came to Buddhism because it, it just didn't feel right. I had this image, of course, it's my literal mind also was the reason I came to Buddhism because Christianity was too hard for me to, to uh, you know, with my literal mind, uh, to I, I kept thinking there was this God up there in the sky somewhere, and uh, yeah, and uh, I was supposed to worship him, but I didn't really know how to do that, and I needed a practice. I needed a meditation practice to to help me get past it. Anyway, yeah, I I, I just felt like he was, uh, and perhaps Ananda was a bit like that, at least the way it's described that he um, was worshiping and. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. Is that? Is that yeah, kind no, thank of you. I, I think the Zen phrase, like putting another head on top of your head, comes to mind. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks. Choro. Pat, thank you for tackling a subject I would never tackle. <laughs> I don't know what craziness I was, my mood I was in when I did that. <laughs> uh, get further down the road to not caring uh, about what everybody might think of my pronouncements before I called enlightenment. So thank you. And I, I just wanted to add to Ananda uh, that um, 
he also is revered um, by women, women practitioners of Zen for uh, actually seeing something the Buddha resisted, which is that women could also practice and attain enlightenment, whatever attain enlightenment means. Um, and there's a whole hour long ancient ceremony that's performed in women's monasteries in Japan. Uh, that's a, a, a ritual of gratitude to, to Ananda for making it possible for women to practice on the same basis as men even if separate, even if you know governed by different rules, but that women had the same capacity as men. And it was without Ananda's intercession, there would be no ordained women. So um, all hail Ananda. <laughs> um, yeah. The other, uh, <laughs> and the other thing I just wanted to say is, uh, speaking of Suzuki Roshi and his uh, comments about enlightenment, I think somewhere in I'm not sure if it's in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, I think it's more anecdotal, but he's, people were pressing him on enlightenment and he said, um, you might not like it. <laughs> Which I kind of think is like, you know, you get this thing that you think is gonna blow up your karma and make you happy and it's gonna solve all problems. And it's like, oh, really? <laughs> this is it? <laughs> so just this is it, right? Yeah. Yeah, they say some people, a lot of people are enlightened, don't even know they're enlightened. And if you go around saying, I am enlightened, it's an obvious indication that you are not enlightened because you as an individual cannot be enlightened. You can only be enlightened when you give up yourself. And that's something that is very hard to do for many of us. And some of us just don't want to do that. We don't want to give up ourselves, but, you know, that's enlightenment. Yeah, thank you. Oh, Maureen. Hi, Pat. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, you, you said something, um, I, I think Suzuki maybe said this, and um, at first I thought, oh, that's cool. And then I thought, wait, I don't get that. And it was something about like enlightenment would be like when you are uh, walk into a space and you're the master of your surroundings. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And so that to me, it sounded like, wait a minute, what, what, what would it mean to be the master of your surroundings? So that's my question for you. Oh, yeah, it sounds like maybe the, like you're a CEO or something, strutting around being the master of everyone in the room. I think he was referring to master of your mind. The same thing that uh, Josh, the koan about Joshu and is the master in, um, that being the master of your mind, I, I, I believe is what that, that refers to getting mastery over your own mind. That you don't listen to everything it tells you to do anymore. Um, because you know how, how uh, mischievous our minds are and how they tell us to do a lot of things that aren't gonna be useful to ourselves or others. Is that okay? Sorry. Okay, hi Josh. I don't know if you can see me or not, but I'm here floating somewhere. Here, I see. Yeah. I'm. I was reminded when you said that thing about enlightenment. Um, if you say you're enlightened, you're not. I was reminded of this thing that sometimes I hear new practitioners say, which is that they sit in zazen and wait for something to happen, or they expect something to happen. Um, and it made me think about how, like, seeking enlightenment is is, is activity. Is a kind of activity. 
And if, if um, Zazen is the sort of closest we get to the absence of activity, the literally doing nothing, literally thinking nothing, then, um, you know, enli enlightenment has to be some aspect of that. And so I, I wonder, I wonder, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I've stopped seeking it, I guess, but I wonder if people are ever surprised by it or if surprise is an aspect of it, right? Like you only find it once you stop looking. Anyway, that, that was sort of a half-form thought, but. Well, I think uh, that experience I had uh, when I realized that I dropped my crazy jealousy, that was that was very surprising to me. I hadn't, uh, hadn't known that, that it happened, but apparently it had. So, well, that was part of what you said. Are people surprised by it? Um, I don't know, what's your experience? Have me? You been yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been surprised by a lot of things. I don't know if any of them have been enlightenment. Um, what something I don't know. I don't. This isn't really enlightenment, but something I've been dealing with recently is um, being surprised by my own karma. Ah, getting to know your karma. Yeah, and yeah. And, and getting getting to know or getting a better understanding of of um, uh, of some karmic effects uh, and consequences of my karma for others. Um, oh. That was sort of surprising. That's not really enlightenment, but um, oh, I don't know about that. I, I think, yeah, getting to know your own karma is a big part of it. Might not be a part of this. I don't know this attainment thing, but yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's uh, very well, much a part of it. And and what's interesting about that is um, it's a very unpleasant experience getting familiar with one's own karma, right? Um, and so we think, you know, if, if, enlightenment, if enlightenment is this thing that we think of as beatific or, or um, you know, eternal joy, eternal inconceivable joy, <laughs> there, there may be some other stuff going on with enlightenment that's um, maybe a little less, um, or maybe a little difficult, right? We think of enlightenment as like eternal ease, like you were saying, but maybe maybe enlightenment is not only the sort of acknowledgement that all life is off kilter, but the actual experience, putting yourself directly in the experience of being off kilter or of suffering. Yeah. Well, that was a great exploration, Josh. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for thanks for opening up yourself to us. Yeah. Let's see, there was somebody else you said who who? Yeah. Who's it? I think I was next. Perhaps. Uh, Pat, I have a few thoughts, but first, I just want to thank you because I, I find I find your talks always very uh, personal, personable. I don't know, like like vulnerable and accessible. You know, like like you're just willing to to kind of open up about things that are that are awkward and and where you don't know, and I, that that makes it easier to to connect. I think. I can certainly connect with uh, when you talked about getting the electronic copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, <laughs> like searching how many times are there and tracking them down. You know, I, I can appreciate that. Um, the, about literalness around, hmm? the literalness of it, you mean? Just taking this word and... <laughs> well, just just the, the very practical kind of, all right, here's my tool and my tool will find them for me and count them for me. And then I can get a handle on this. 
you know, it's a very concrete approach. And like, so what is enlightenment? I'm like, okay, let's find all the times that it's mentioned, you know, <laughs> gather them together like a research paper. Yeah, um, me and Ananda, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's not just you two, I think. Um, but on the subject of enlightenment, a, a, a few things came up for me. One was this, this little nugget of a quote that I've seen attributed to Suzuki Roshi, but I've also seen attributed to Robert Aiken. And I think it's just one of those things that someone was going to say, whoever it was, and maybe several people come up with it. And then like, you know, its original source gets lost. But the saying goes something like this, that enlightenment is an accident. The practice makes us accident prone. <laughs> um, that, that was one thing. And then when you were talking about attaining, um, this, this line jumped out at me. And I'll confess, I looked it up. <laughs> this is why I can relate to the looking up you know, tendency. It's like, that's really familiar, but what's the context? And it's from the Ehei uh, Koso Hotsuganman. Like we're able to attain enlightenment and let go of the attainment. You know, wow. And it's in the context of because we're connected to Buddhas and ancestors, because we are Buddhas and ancestors, like they extend their compassion, we attain, we drop the attaining. Um, and then, the, and then lastly, I just yesterday I was listening to this uh, Brad Warner podcast. And he, he was, it was a Q&A session with whoever he was speaking to. And he was talking about enlightenment experiences, you know, like, like enlightenment as an experience. And, I, and I'm probably going to butcher what he said, but it was something like, to the extent that he has had anything that could be called or compared to enlightenment experiences, it was like this momentary glimpse uh, of how things really are. But it's sort of like getting a peek behind a curtain and then, then the curtain goes back in place. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> There's something going on there. What is it? And the guy's like, no, nah, that's all you get. <laughs> you just get the, the glimpse. And, you know, so you know it was real. You know the experience was real. And you know that you saw something. But it's not, you know, like you were saying, it's not like, all right, I'm there. I've gotten it. It's like, you know, you don't get your enlightenment cert certification, you know, so to speak. And then you're just always in the enlightenment. But I, I think things can happen, you know, whether it's slow or sudden or surprising or, or what have you. And like things are different afterward, but also impossible to talk about. So again, I, I appreciate your taking on the impossible. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bruce. Yeah, a lot of good comments there. And it reminded me of something I wanted to say uh, also that Suzuki Roshi said, and I left that out for some reason, that um, that there is nothing special about enlightenment. And and yet, and yet, as <laughs> you said, there is. <laughs> and I, I know that in my own life, I think back about being around somebody, usually it's somebody here at the Zen Center or some other Zen person that I know that uh, maybe I think of them as an enlightened person or not, or maybe they're just having an enlightened, you know, they're in an enlightened moment, you know, they're touching Buddha. And I've been very, uh, I remember two events, one monk uh, that was living at AZC a long time ago, and I had a flat tire because I used to get here late for, remember when we actually drove to the Zen Center, you know, and I drive up and I hit the curb, and I've had several flat tires that way. Uh, Mary helped me with one of them, but anyway, I, I got a flat tire, and and this guy offered to help me. I didn't even ask him. He offered, and he came out with me, and 
he helped me change the time. We were sitting there on the pavement, you know, dealing with the jack and everything. And I just felt this incredible love. I mean, it was an unconditional love, nothing romantic. And I, it just, uh, I've never forgotten that moment. And then I had another moment once at the airport when I went to pick up Kosho and I was looking all around, I didn't see him. And all of a sudden I felt this presence next to me. It was so warm and affectionate. And I just never have forgotten that moment. So, I mean, you know, this it does make a difference. There is something there, you know, uh, that that we that we can experience, but it's also nothing special. Uh, hi, uh, um, uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, uh, I, I very much uh, uh, liked uh, hearing uh, your perspective on such a charged word. Um, uh, I don't so. I uh, I know uh, I know part of the reason why I ended up uh, here at AZC was uh, was for this chase of enlightenment because it seems like such a trophy prize, right? Like a you know oh I just uh, you know uh, follow this follow these steps and you know I attain enlightenment. And uh, in fact, I even uh, started uh, uh, before coming to AZC. I uh, I was uh, reading out of a book uh, that uh, that gave you the ten steps the ten stages to enlightenment. All I had to do is just uh, meditate uh, by following the instructions and. Uh, and uh, you too uh, could attain enlightenment uh, by, uh, uh, you know, by following this 10-step program uh, and, uh, <laughs> and reaching it. Um, and, so, uh, and, so, uh, and so one of the great things uh, that I've enjoyed about coming to AZC was sort of deflating this balloon of enlightenment. Um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I like very much this, uh, this, you know, this idea, for example, uh, from uh, Suzuki Roshi, where uh, in a way you are already enlightened, uh, you, know, you just have to sort of... Uh, Turn inward. I guess it's uh, you know my view on it, um, and so I was uh, I was wondering um, this this notion of uh, enlightenment, right? Uh, uh, you know, it's a very problematic word, uh, and uh, the more you try to attain it, the less you actually uh, get there, uh, perhaps. Um, but uh, but then there's one thing that popped up uh, in this uh, conversation today. Uh, this no, uh, I mean, the way I I, I view uh, this path, uh, you could say, is um, trying to move in a direction where you uh, try to uh, let go of this grasping of this notion of self that you have. Um, and uh, to me, that is uh, intertwined somehow with uh, what we call enlightenment. Um, but uh, this notion, uh, th this thing to me seems like a more tangible, I don't wanna use the word goal, but at least a direction um, uh, where, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about like, uh, you know, oh, like, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, it's like a, you know, like a trophy you can hang on a wall, you know, because uh, you can claim that uh, you've, uh, you've, uh, you've attained enlightenment. Instead, it's just um, learning to try to let go of something. Um, uh, uh, would you say that's an accurate view? Yeah, yeah, just letting go of something. Uh, yeah, I think that you, you, you've got the idea there. What is the name of the book that's 10 Steps to Enlightenment? Oh, um, uh, uh, The Mind that. Illuminated. The mind illuminated. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. If it were that easy, then wow, there should be a, a whole whole saga full of enlightened people. And and maybe there is, you know? I mean, we are. <laughs> we're all enlightened. <laughs> we we just don't we don't uh, always remember that. <laughs> I think it's remembering that is uh, is part of the key. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jose. Yeah. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> well, 
it's after 11, so uh, if, if there's one more person that wants to say something, um, anybody see a hand raised that I, oh, Mark. Oh, just um, thank you for, um, for uh, tackling such a fraught word. Um, just uh, so a little uh, linguistic comment. Um, in English-speaking Buddhism, this English word enlightenment is like really ingrained. It's like in all the books. It's what we usually use in conversation. Um, but it's kind of weird. It, uh, if I understand correctly, it was coined as a translation of Bodhi, which really means awakening or to wake up um, by a British, in the late 19th century, by a British um, scholar of Sanskrit named Manir Williams, who was not a fan of Buddhism. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I, I, uh, I can't help but wonder, uh, since, I mean, it's really, it's really peculiar to English speaking Buddhism, uh, that we have this word and it's kind of, it's kind of opaque. Like people just hear this word enlightenment and it's like, ah, oh, what, what is, what is that? Whereas uh, awakening, we have like more more of an idea of like you know what it's like waking up from sleep and you know um are we going through life on autopilot kind of in a, a waking sleep kind of kind of like sleepwalking and then ah, become more aware of what we're what we're doing what on earth we're doing <laughs> <laughs> for a moment and uh, I, I just uh, wonder if it I, I kind of well I mean it's so I think a more literal translation would be awakening but I, I, I not just being literal about it but I, I wonder if it would be more helpful to English-speaking Buddhists to use this wor a word that's more like the, the words that are used in Asian Buddhism instead of this weird word enlightenment. Um, that's, uh, that's all I got. Well, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I, I do like that word awakening. It is a little friendlier. You know, I didn't search on uh, Suzuki's, uh, Suzuki's use of the word mm. enlightenment. Maybe I'll do that well, next time. I wonder how many occurrences are there where awakening are, are in there. Oh, and you said it started with uh, Satori, which if I understand correctly, that's the native, a native Japanese word that means to wake up. Um, right. So it's like the kanji that's pronounced wu in Chinese plus the hiragana ri. Um, I think is how it's written, and if it if like the Japanese pronunciation that's derived from Chinese is go, um, but and then 
there's also like other words that could get translated sometimes as enlightenment that uh, literally mean like liberation or this really weird word that I think the sense of it is crossing a river, like crossing the river from samsara to nirvana um, and you know, like realization and st stuff like that. And I, I'm not sure if there's like Sanskrit antecedents to some of those other words but anyway but but yeah so he, he was talking about satori he just he was he was speaking in english and he was just using this you know what he learned was the english word for it and 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 you found it so that that kind of like answered really answered that <laughs> that um, initial question. That well, if you go back and look at that forward, you'll see why he used the word Satori. He was comparing Suzuki Roshi to DT Suzuki. And I think mm -hmm. Satori is a word that's used more in a Rinzai tradition, mm -hmm. but it does mean mm -hmm. the same thing as enlightenment. So, you know, it had really no relevance, except when I saw it, I thought, oh, is that true? He really didn't talk about enlightenment? Wow, let's go find out. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, Bruce, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, for, uh, yeah, the uh, linguistic uh, uh, education there. And so, uh, yeah, whatever it is, whatever it is, we do not want to try to attain it. We, and, and maybe in not trying to attain it, we will somewhat attain it. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for... Uh, for listening to my talk and for your wonderful comments and it was a, as usual a joy to to be here with you